I was talking to someone today actually, um, they talk about that word vulnerability, he goes, you know, how important is vulnerability? And I said, well, it depends what your definition of vulnerability is. You know, Brene Brown's work, and that's been really, really good, but I think people have taken it too far. But also vulnerability is actually trying different things because, you know, biologically, we don't want to take risks. The brain's not geared for that, it wants to be safe. Because I always say to people, if you want to do mental skills, you want to know what pressure and stress feels like, get married, have kids. Because nothing will stress you than those two activities. You know, gone are the days, you'd go to a young player, 18, right there in the academy, right, what are your goals? It was really clear, Crusader All Black. It was never a hesitation. And then about five, six, seven years ago, where it was, you know, what's your goal? To be a professional rugby player. Who for? Don't care. You know, we don't jazz up the gym at all. You're still lifting the weight, mate. You know, we don't jazz up running at all. You still got to run. You still get your basics in place. You still got to make sure you got to sit there and lift them. Because for me, focus is the currency of performance. And we have a world that's so unfocused. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. In today's episode, we delve into the fascinating topic of creating world-class teams and winning with renowned mental skills trainer, John Quinn. With two decades of experience spanning government, education, business, and high-performing sports, John is a seasoned expert who draws on leadership skills, positive psychology, and well-being research. As the Director of Performance Wellbeing, John's mission is clear, unleashing the passions and strengths within individuals and teams for optimal results. And that he certainly does. His impressive roster includes national sporting organisations, including rugby, cricket and softball, and he has guided countless athletes to world titles and Olympic glory. John is the mental skills trainer for the Crusaders, who have won an unbelievable seven Super Rugby titles in a row. He's also the mental skills trainer for Kubota Spears Funabashi Tokyo Bay, who won the recent Japan Rugby One competition. He started his career as a social worker, and he has a holistic approach to unlocking human potential. John Quinn, or as I said before we started, Golden Gloves, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. And as I said before, it's not quite as simple as that, but yes. Uh, I've been very fortunate with, to work with some pretty amazing people uh, and teams. Now, let me pump your tyres up. The Aussie Kiwi allegiance, we're normally meant to sort of slag each other. <laughs> but you must be sitting back at the moment after winning the Super Rugby competition again. And our, our mutual friend, Aaron Walsh, Paul Walsh, I spoke to him two or three days after he was shattered. It's just a legacy you've created there at Canterbury Crusaders. And then you've won also in the Super Rugby competition in Japan. So you must sit back and reflect and go, wow, that's a pretty good achievement. Look, it's going to sound silly, but probably hashtag humble, but it's their achievement. I mean, the Crusaders is a good example. This was this legacy was built 25 years ago. Uh, Wayne Smith, um, Gilbert Anoka and others, when they started the you know, first couple of years when the team didn't perform that well and they kind of sat back and basically remodelled the, the, the franchise, the team, the vision of what it was. And, you know, to be part of that, it's you're really lucky because often you learn more from them, the team and the organisation. They probably learn from us at times. But they're a good example of a team whose values driven, clear vision where they want to go. They recruit on character. You know, an amazing academy, amazing staff. So to be part of it, you know, look, it's great to watch people uh, achieve their goals. And sometimes that can be winning stuff, sometimes that can just be improving. So look, I've been really lucky to be part of that. And, you know, the Kubota staff were very similar. I got there at the right time. I mean, they had a coach there from South Africa, France, who, who saw 
the good and you know holistic rugby too in the sense of it wasn't just technical and tactical you know and he took a punt on me um ryan crotty was here at the time and crotts was a massive ally in the space so you know as we talked about you know off here beforehand the mental skills space is still one that's probably not reinforced as much as it should be you know around it and look they took a punt and particularly at japan at the time and they had to kind of frame it in a way that was around a bit of leadership stuff because they probably haven't really got the head around mental skills in Japanese rugby yet and they probably you know it took New Zealand rugby to get the head around that which was probably post to eleven before they really committed to it. Not New Zealand rugby but I suppose New Zealand sport. So like I've been really fortunate to, to work with some pretty amazing people and rod their coot on their shirt. Shirts I suppose at times. Uh, hashtag humble the harder you work the luckier you get and you've worked hard in a couple of decades in sports. So a rough frame for today. John what do they call you in New Zealand? Quinny? JQ? What's your nickname? Yep. Yeah, well, many things. If you ask my wife, it wouldn't be as nice as that sometimes. But no, usually it's, it's Quinny or JQ is usually the main. Oh, well, we'll intersperse yeah. it. So rough frame, evolution of your interest in human performance. So I know a little bit about you from being a social worker, but I want to pull on that thread. Two, we'll talk about the six pillars you talk about that underpin world-class teams and I want to go deeper on mental skills. Thriving under pressure. That is a topic that I've heard you talk about on multiple podcasts. Then four, the art and science of winning. We've already done a bit of an intro, the Crusaders and Kubota Spears. Yep. Some of the frameworks you bring to that. And then five, performance uncovered. Uh, but before we go your career evolution, and I think this will run parallel, reflecting about this podcast I mentioned before, Aaron Walsh, Walshy, who as we speak is at the World Cup, Rugby Union World Cup with Scotland. Look at just this hotbed of talent that has come out of New Zealand in mental skills and culture. Gilbert and Oka, you mentioned before, I think Gilbert was with All Blacks for about 20 years. Walshy, Owen Eastwood, we've had Owen on this podcast, just a, a wonderful storyteller and his beautiful links to Maori tradition with Papa yourself. Uh, Kerry Evans, who has worked around the world. Dave Galbraith, I believe, is the Japan rugby mental skills coach. Who have I missed? Yep. Oh, look, there's plenty of others. Rod Corbin, Kylie Wilson, uh, and Pete Sanford, Nat Hogg, uh, Jason McKenzie. I mean, look, and I'll probably miss some. Campbell Thompson, I'll probably miss some. There. We've been really lucky, and I think, um, and Don Patisse, another one I keep names, names coming up. But, but I think because we're a smaller country, we've been able to probably connects a lot easier and, and it goes back probably nearly 20 years when um, I don't know whose vision it was but in those days it was Spark New Zealand I think which was kind of the sport sport funding and New Zealand rugby decided to get uh, mental skills slash sports psychologists together and start to grow the industry because before that you, you probably had your, your grandfathers and you know, people were like me saying that but you know Gilbert and Oka, Gary Hermeson, Ken Hodge and, and Dave Hadfield, who were the, probably the main ones playing in this space in New Zealand. This was the early 2000s, and Gilbert was long even before that. And so we used to meet once or twice a year and, and, and have two or three days together, and they're just, we'd just talk. And it was almost like a, a PhD of mental skills, sports psychology. And for us young ones, we'd just be sitting there writing notes and asking questions. And um, often halfway through, they go, what do you guys think? We go, we don't think, we just listen. So just, you know, we just keep on listening. So... We were really lucky. It broke down a lot of barriers. It made really good connections. And, and people kind of, I suppose the patch protection, what was potentially there beforehand, kind of dropped. And everyone realized we just want to work together. And that's has survived through to today, where there's still really strong connections with each other. Everyone's working together and everyone's working for the, the good of the athletes. Yeah, and you're all working around the world. So sporting teams, literally, like Owen's work with the English football team, Walsh's with Scotland. 
DG is with Japan. Like Kerry Evans has been working with Premiership Football as well. And I think Gilbert's going over to work in Premiership Football or is there working. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I just think we've, we've had some success in the All Blacks is probably the flagship of that. I mean, pre-211, I think if we all had mental skills in sports psychology, but with rugby being the main sport, I don't know if there was complete buy-in from coaches at times, and it still isn't, to be fair, across the across different sports. But when they won two eleven, that kind of normalised mental skills because the players talked about the work Kerry did and the work Gilbert did, and so suddenly it became mainstream and it came became okay. And you listen listen to a lot of the players talk about it. Where before that, it was often a I suppose a deficit model of if you if there's something wrong with you, go and have a chat to the mental skills sports psychologist. Where now people saw it as work any better um, around it, and then when they backed up to two fifteen, it that allowed it then to really push it. And, you know, Richie's documentary, 211, Kerry featured in that. So I think it just allowed association sports people to realise actually that this is another pillar we need to chip into because everyone does the technical stuff, physical stuff the same, nutritional stuff, reasonably similar. And so what's the point of difference? And it became the mind stuff and it just became normal. And so we've been lucky we're around at the time where people actually wanted more of it. So high-performance sports started encouraging it and it kind of grew from there. And then as players obviously go around the world, um, those connections become their term and it's allowed us to do other work around the world, which has been great. So before you were sitting there with some of those legends of culture and leadership and mental skills, I mentioned at the start you're a, a social worker, but what, what, what did you first study? Was that the first thing you did out of school, working with a whole bunch of people? No, look, I went overseas, finished school, went overseas for three years and played a bit of sport and I suppose the University of Life in England for three years had a great time. <laughs> the church on a Sunday afternoon? Yeah, 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 it was always a good afternoon. It was always a shock when you walked out, it was daylight at four o'clock in the afternoon. But I had a great time and I thought, well, what do I want to do? And I've always wanted to work with people. So I started studying, did an undergrad in sociology because I don't really know what I wanted to do and that was an easy one to get into and do. Finished that and then did a postgrad in social work two years. And I was a social worker for probably four or five years, mainly working with youth, youth justice, uh, and that sort of stuff. Really enjoyed that space. But then I was getting to the point where, you know, I could work with people to a point, but I wanted more, more tools and more skills. So I went back to university and did my master's in counselling, did that part time. And that, I suppose, and this is where the luck part or fortunate part comes into it. When I was in my last year, and a lot of some of the papers there didn't really interest me. And, and at the time, there's a guy called Bob Montai who was a Canadian guy who was really into his basketball. Uh, he used to do a lot of commentary in his own. He said to me, Why don't you do something around sports psychology from a counseling model? And I went, Yeah, sure. So, what are we going to do? So, we kind of came up with I was trained in solution focused counseling. How do you use a solution focused model within sports psychology and mental skills? So, Trying to find someone to supervise that was really hard because, again, there wasn't any training he's on at the time around it. And I happened to get hold of a guy called Ashley Light, who was an English guy who worked for, in those days, Academy of Sport New Zealand, who had mental skills background. So he kind of supervised me for a year to two years. And I did a lot of reading, and a lot of observation stuff. And I was working at a school at the time as a school counsellor. So I kind of used the kids as crash test dummies to, to try some of the stuff with. And look, some of my stuff was pretty average, to be fair, because I didn't really know what I was doing. And it just kind of evolved, and that was a bit, for me, I had a couple of years where I could just try stuff, and, you know, the kids would give you feedback around it, and I worked with the teams at the school, and, you know, look at some early work and go, wow, how do I ever think that would be helpful? But you had to go through that process of, you know, I suppose mastering your craft, and I still haven't mastered it, but I'm still trying to. And it kind of evolved from there, and at the time, you know, I always had an interest in people. Then I loved sports, so it was kind of a, a win-win scenario. And then 
I played a lot of cricket and, you know, the Canary boys. So, again, some of them still look, I'll be keen to do some work with you. And I went, sure, not really knowing. You know, you talk about imposter syndrome. That was pretty big at the stage because I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew enough to do it safely. Um, and it just kind of kept evolving from there, basically. And because I wanted to get better, you keep researching, you keep connecting with the right people and keep learning. So, literally, just it was never something I thought, this is what I'm going to do. You know, it was always, I want to be a social worker, then call, I want to be a counsellor, do that. And that was kind of what I thought I'd do, you know, work at a school, loved working in schools, loved young, working with young people, loved to be able to do a bit of sport coaching there. But then this other kind of pathway came along and went, wow, that wasn't what I expected. I, go, I get asked quite a lot now, and I'm sure you do. Joel and Andrew, how do you become a mental skills coach and work with athletes and players around the team? Like, what what should I do? What degree? And I just say it's it's life. You mentioned in London the University of Life or University of Experience, but it's a range of skills. And and in researching you, I really like this piece. You said, as far as working with school age teams, quote, this is probably the key part. The earlier you teach athletes skills, the better. It's harder because you are almost selling the product and it's a product they never realise they need. Some young athletes haven't failed a lot. The analogy I use with them, it's like insurance. It doesn't matter how good you are at driving, it's how everyone else drives around you is what you should be thinking about. Training mental skills creates this insurance policy for things that can go wrong. Nice summary. Do you remember yeah, writing that? That's an interesting one. This is <laughs> not at all. I still use it, but I can't remember that. But, and this is the thing, that, you know, especially I've been with the Crusaders Academy for nearly 16 years now, and you see that there where you, you have, and this is a very general statement, some aren't like this, but often the 18 to 20-year-olds, it's you're shadow boxing something because they know they have to come and see you because it's part of you do a one-on-one or you do group sessions, and they always sit there and nod and grunt at the right time because that's what they're meant to do. And then they get to 21, 22, and then they start getting challenged because they're not playing or they're not playing well or they've been injured or they're not the big fish in the small pond. And often then they come back and go, right, let's do some work. And it's like, cool, now they're ready for it. And that's what I'm saying. We can't push this upon people and it's about building those relationships. So when they are ready to learn, and some are already at 18, but my experience is it's 22, 23, I think when the penny starts dropping, they mature a wee bit more, they understand themselves a wee bit more. They've, you know, grown into their bodies and they're actually understanding that, you know, my technique's actually really good and I'm really strong in the gym, but I keep making mistakes. And often, as you know, when, when athletes make mistakes early doors, they train harder. You know, Is I that the first time the they've, they've had some adversity? Because imagine the young players coming through in any sport, men and women, when they're good, they make the teams, they make the regional, the state teams, they make the national teams and they haven't had that adversity. So it makes sense. But what, what do you teach young skills? Is it just some basic fundamentals so if anyone is listening to this is there two or three key things you teach an 18 19 20 year old before they come to you at 20 or 20 22 23 it doesn't matter how old it's the same stuff it's it's basic stuff around identity piece and that's that's the bit that sometimes work early sometimes doesn't depending when they're really about understanding who they are as a person first and foremost which because most of them are known as the athlete you know you know, that, that's their identity because it allows them to be called at school because when you get to the school, everyone's worried about who, where you fit. The jock's still pretty cool, so I identify as a jock. And then that, that, that piece there is a struggle for them when they actually aren't then playing because who am I if I'm not actually playing my sport? Often I talk about focus, what do they need to focus on? And that's doing real basic stuff, goal setting. Most people goal set terribly. Um, we're such an outcome-focused society and everyone sees, you know, the, the Instagram and all those social medias as a highlight through and they think that's what they need to do. So really getting them to understand what success looks like and particularly younger athletes 
getting the parents to understand what success looks like. And as she's touched on, you know, success is about failure. We don't let these kids, and this is again, Gerard's comment from parents, they don't let their kids fail anymore. John Quinn, you're not going to use the F word in the first 15 or 20 minutes of our podcast. How dare you? You're going to hang up across the Tasman. Do not talk to me about high performance, champ, and mention the F word failure. Oh, what are you negative? No, no. I, I, I hear sometimes really kitsch, and it's where the 1.0 positive psychology had a bad rap. If you think you can, you can. Thank goodness it's evolved that you know, positive psychology 2.0 is the whole range of emotion, the whole human experience. But I really like some of the readings and some of what I've heard you say on podcast. If you've got to embrace failure or setback, it's part of the process. If you're going to be great at anything, athlete, entrepreneur, worker, and can I just correct you? When you and I went to school, I think we're a similar vintage, uh, the athletes or the jocks were cool. It's the tech kids who are cool now as well because they have the startups, <laughs> yeah. right? And they have the jets and yeah. everything else that goes with it. So the, the tech kids have caught yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> But teaching failure or setback, whatever word, challenge, it's really important. Look, it is, and I think as parents, it's really tough because, you know, parents want their kids to, to do well. But the problem is you do well. And often I say to people, it's, there's a great, I think it's Nelson Mandela, I don't know if he said it or not, but it's his pitch, you know, I never lose, either win or I learn. And I, it's one I always hold on to with people is that, you know, we've got to get rid of the word failure and say, what have you learned today? And it, it's very cliche, but that's your growth piece. Now, again, I use the gym as an analogy. You don't grow the first rep or the first set. You grow when you're struggling. That's when your muscles actually grow. And it's how do we educate parents in this space that struggle's okay. I mean, everything around our society now is geared for comfort. You know, we haven't had bloody wheels in our suitcases in case we hurt our shoulder lifting our bloody suitcase. So we have a society where it equates comfort with happiness. And because of this, if people are uncomfortable, they think there's something wrong. We're in high-performance sport of life. It's going to be uncomfortable. And so what are the tools you need when it is uncomfortable? If you, have to, you, know, if you can reframe that, here's a growth space you know, around it. And don't get me wrong, none of us like it at times, but we like the outcome when we get through it. So it's the same with our athletes. We can get them to understand you know, what does success look like for you? Um, and success could be simple stuff. Get to bed at the right time. That's success because most kids don't get enough sleep nowadays. You know, planning your day out, having a goal for training, reviewing the goal after training. And that's what I've learned from the best athletes. You know, I think often when people speak with me, they get quite disappointed because I'm not telling them rocket science, but I'm telling them things that they know to do, but they won't actually do it because it's too hard. Because what's easy to do is easier not to do. But we want you the know? hack. And the best athletes do yeah. those little things. We want the hack, the, the biggest trick, the tip. I get really wound up on this wizard nose. Don't mention to me about getting a ribbon for coming 10th. Little Johnny, little Andy. Well done for not trying. Sit there on your ever-expanding ass as a 10-year-old playing computer games, eating shit food, having no activity. We'll still give you a ribbon. I, I get really wound up and I've had feedback sometimes. I've said stuff like this. Some parents are, oh, you shouldn't be saying that. I think, look, I've got four kids. I love them. But I struggle as well with this whole notion. You've got to let them struggle. But you do because if they don't have any challenge, when they get knocked down, which is going to happen at some stage in life – if they've been driven to school in a Bentley, I often say little Lord Fauntleroy has been given the, the gold spoon from age zero, it's actually not doing the right thing for your kids. Life's not like that. Look, it's not. No, look, the best analogy of the story is the old butterfly story, you know, when the butterfly's in the cocoon and someone comes along and is struggling to get out. So someone comes along and cuts it so it makes it easier for the butterfly to get out of the cocoon. I'm going to hash the story a wee bit, but the gist of it, by doing the struggle actually allows the wings to grow, the, the blood to get through the wings and the butterfly to actually fly. But by making it easy for the butterfly, 
the butterfly actually can't fly. So we think we're doing the right thing, but we're actually doing the wrong thing. And don't get me wrong, there is times when you have to support your children and the struggle is not okay, but it's not fair to struggle. And, and that's my concern. And, and, and we're seeing this in sport too, is that kids are giving up because we're rewarding the wrong stuff. And it's not about, you know, we need to reward the effort. We need to, you know, that character strength stuff, reward that, not the people winning. And this is the real challenge at schools. It's the same kids going across the stage. Well, most schools, it's maturity ID, not talent ID. The bigger kids or the ones um, who have got more skills, they're generally the ones who win stuff and who are better at sport. But by the time you get to 18, 20, talent's irrelevant. And we see this over and over again. So how do we still reward the right, you know, the kid who's persevered in class all year and, and sat on a B, how do we reward that kid for really persevering and working hard instead of always rewarding that kid who gets an A plus with his jack, jack shit? You know, and that's the battle schools have got because parents, you know, they like to be able to see what their kids are achieving. Where for me, it's it's the character piece. You know, I always say to my kids when they used to come home, Dad, I got now, I don't give a shit what you got. Did you work hard? Because that's something that I'm interested in. Because that's the bit you can control. You know, around it. And at times, I used to get quite annoyed, but eventually, they started getting the message is that if we work hard and work smart, the other characteristics you can always control. Will you always achieve your goal? No, you won't because that's not life. But you will get better. And it's the same with athletes. No, just because you got this goal, everyone else has got it. But if you can get closer to it, one step closer to where you were. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. I like that framework that sits behind your methodology. And if I can just summarize for young kids, you've said four or five key areas. Look at their identity. You're not the athlete. You've got a whole person concept. You have other hobbies outside, which is so important. Goal setting and understanding the goal setting process. Dealing with success and setbacks or failure. And also encouraging, embracing struggle, not getting rewarded for having talent and not working. Gosh, how many people have we seen over the years who are the wonderful 14, 15, 16-year-old rock star athletes, rock star musicians, rock star students, and they don't have to struggle, and then it gets hard and they tap out. So I really like that framework for young kids and anyone listening to this. And I often get asked, what should I do with my young kids? Listen to those four or five key processes, John said, and drill down on those. Nice segue into the six pillars that underpin world-class teams. I said this before we went live. I don't look at you as a mental skills coach. I see you've got this beautiful blend between mental skills and psychology, really understanding humans. And I can't help but think sociology and dealing with a range of people. That question, you know, what should yep. you do to be a mental skills coach? Don't be a mental skills coach to start. Understand people. Then you have the intersection yep. of well-being and then leadership. Those six pillars are one, technical ability, two, tactical, three, physical, four, nutritional, five, mental, and six, holistic leadership. I like that you've added leadership. Yeah. Well, the, the sixth one's interesting. Again, this is not my work by any means. This is New Zealand Rugby got this years ago and became part of their, their IPP process, which is individual, individual performance plan. And it was kind of looking at that. And it's a nice way of working with athletes is, is around, let's, let's look at these six pillars currently, um, if 10 out of 10 is world-class, we're at the moment. So it gives you an idea about what they're working on, where they are, and often the mental one is the wee way down. So the sixth one, often, whether you want to call it life balance or leadership or self-leadership, I think it's such an important one now, particularly with our athletes, 
because as I said, you know, once they finish playing, you know, what are they? And you look at a rugby example, I still think the average lifespan of rugby players is under two years or three, sorry, under three years now, I think, or two and a half. Probably leagues the same. I don't know what the stats are for cricket, but they're probably not great either. So, Cricket's got longer because now it's expanded outside of New Zealand comp and you play a few test matches and Chapel Hadley series against Australia every summer and Aussie was the same. With 2020 cricket now, with franchises popping up near the IPL, we've just had mates of mine over in America for the first edition of the American Premier League. We've got now IPL, Indian Premier League, sponsored tournaments in Saudi Arabia and also South Africa. So yeah, cricket, uh, the boys used to call it, because I worked with cricket, uh, New South Wales Cricket Australian cricket all up for nearly 10 years. They used to call IPL the uh, insurance or retirement premium. You'd go off there and get the retirement fund. But we've got players now in cricket. So it it really has changed uh, in cricket because there's so many more opportunities. But yeah, in rugby league, it's a couple of years. Rugby union, it's a couple of years. And life is much longer than that. Yeah, so look, uh, rugby and cricket and high-performance sport have, um, I think they're called, they were called Athlete Life Advisors, I think they've changed the name again. And that, their role is, uh, in rugby, it's PDMs, development managers, basically. Um, and their role is to support the athletes around what some other things they can do around um you know, outside the sports, whether it's through supporting them around finance or business, um, study, doing different things. So there's certainly an appetite for that now. But again, the athlete has to want to be part of it. And some really embrace that stuff and some get onto it early and some don't. But I think it's a, such an important area because, you know, who are they outside the game, which becomes an important question. You don't want to ask that as you're retiring. Um, and you look at some of, you know, Dan Carter's comments recently, how he really struggled. Here's a guy financially pretty well set up and a world-class player. Yeah, he still struggled post stopping to playing about who he was and where we where he saw himself in the world. So it's certainly um, one we're going to pay high attention to because that well-being piece becomes so important. If you're not well, you generally won't perform, and that's across any any industry. Surprise me with Dan Carter because he would have been there when Cherry Evans was there and Gilbert was doing the work in that time period. So yeah, it did surprise when I read a few of the quotes and saw on social media. That, that- but again. But a lot of that is still around performance. And I know this is where you know, sports are getting better at understanding that there's more beyond performance. So what goes into your performance jigsaw puzzle? Well, we often we talk about those five pillars, but the sixth one, that development one becomes really, really important. So what are you doing outside the game? And, you know, Dan was probably the, the last of that era who probably, look, I don't know for a fact, so I'll be careful, but maybe didn't take that as seriously as maybe the players do now because there's a lot more support in that space. The Players Association are very strong. You know, around it, but I think for a lot of players, it's the retirement's a bit of a dirty word. So, and often they think, you know, I'll be fine, but it is a, you know, it's not a real world that they live in. It's, it's you know, I was away the last couple of months overseas, since sports, it's not a real world. You don't live in hotels and have a buffet every day and get you get your laundry done all the time. So it's not this reality. And when that goes, I remember talking to some of the players. A lot of sports, you know, they they stop playing and come Monday they open their phone. There's nothing in the calendar. Now, for some of those players, for 15 years, every day they're saying in the calendar, which is done for them, you know, or we almost institutionalise some athletes because it is so structured to every day, right, what am I doing today, what am I doing today? So I think sports are better at doing this and, and that wellbeing piece that they've identified, that's really, really important. And I think from that, you will hopefully see players stay longer in the game, but also perform better. A very wise man, JQ, wrote the following, it doesn't matter how good you are at your sport for most careers. In sport, it's 10 years if you're lucky. So creating an environment outside sport is very important. 
It's important to understand that they have more than one passion, not just sport. What can you pursue outside the game? Often we challenge players to do different things. It's now a part of the program, including underwater breathing, learning to breathe better, or drama classes and ballroom dancing. It is also about creating their ability to be vulnerable as high-performance sport is a very vulnerable piece. Who wrote those wonderful well, words? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's a bit of it. This is—I was talking to someone today, actually, um, and he's a businessman. He, he talked about that word vulnerability. He goes, "You know how important is vulnerability?" And I said, "Well, it depends what your definition of vulnerability is." And I think we've probably, you know, Brene Brown's work, and that's been really, really good. But I think people have taken it too far. Is that for me, vulnerability is the ability to put your hand up and you know go, "I got this wrong," uh, and acknowledge that. And as much as people will probably skate in the Vinnie Jones, at least he did that post that PG game. He goes, "This is my responsibility, my fault." But also vulnerability is actually trying different things because, you know, biologically, we don't want to take risks. The brain's not geared for that. It wants to be safe. So vulnerability, I remember one of the athletes going into Rio, you know, part of their mental skills program was having to go to a dance class with their partner, which we recorded, because the process to manage that, managing your breath, managing the tension in the body, managing your thoughts is no different sometimes when you're in the pressure and then in the sport you're doing. So sometimes it's how do you create practical opportunities because for me mental skills is life skills it's not just about whether you can catch and pass a ball or hit a ball wherever it is it's how do you use these in the day-to-day life because it becomes 24 7 it's not 7 11 where you just do it during your working days because i always say to people if you want to do mental skills you want to know what pressure and stress feels like get married have kids because nothing will stress you <laughs> or push your buttons from my point of view so i'm nodding for those two activities yeah yeah, yeah. yeah not you know, I mean, in a, in a positive way too. I mean, I'm not saying it's a negative thing, but you know, nothing will push. I can be as patient with everyone else in the world's kids, my own. I want to throw them out the windows most days. So, the ability to manage that is another skill, but we're not taught that at school. We're not taught about emotions at school, particularly people probably of our generation not taught about feelings. So, how do we kind of educate people to normalize some of the stuff? Because if we get the mental health bit right, the other stuff follows. And so I think, you know, when I say mental health, I mean positive mental health. And I think if we can get a focus on that, and look at the best teams and cultures, they have a real place of care. I mean, look at the word culture comes from a Latin word, many care. That's what they do really well. There's genuine care. Uh, and that's whether it's a big team or, or a little team. And uh, how do we actually put a high price on that stuff? And I think if you want performance, goes back to Owen Eastwood's work, you know, that belonging piece is massive. Mm. A couple of open loops I've got to pick up on. One is how do you position to some of your forwards who are like 130 kilograms plus. Hey guys, today we're going to do some drama lessons. How does that go down? Well, again, it's horses for courses. I mean, I look at um, the breathing stuff. If I ever do any sessions with any, when I was when I do sessions with teams, and rugby is a prime example, we always start off with a mindfulness exercise or a breathing exercise. And what you find is generally, you know, like Crusades, for example, or Canterbury Cricket, the big boys in the front straight away do it. And so the young ones at the back are looking and going, oh, shit, if they're doing it, I better do it. So it's, it's how we normalise some of this stuff. And some of them, it's around what are some things that will push them outside their comfort zone. Because the worst thing we can do is, if they're here, is push them to there. Because that's too scary. And if it's too scary, they won't go back to here again. Or they actually could probably go back further. So it's finding things that will do that will challenge them. And that can be from the ballroom dance. And it can be from beside different people it can be asking questions in a team meeting it can be doing things outside the team too so for me it's just sitting down with them and going okay well what scares you because for me the three things that drive most of our behavior is fear and it's fear of failure fear of judgment and fear of fitting in 
And if you haven't got any of those fears, well played, but you'll be the first person I've met who hasn't doesn't fear those three things. So it's unpacking with some of the athletes, which one really pushes your buttons. And the fear of failure, I think, is one that they get their head around easier. But the judgment one, particularly with social media now, it's really, really tough. And often people talk about, you know, you'd like to be younger. I wouldn't like to be any younger at all. I'd hate, I don't like the world they've got at the moment with some of that social media. It's quite a different world than for us getting used to. So getting them to understand what, what are the bits that stop them doing stuff. Because every day we don't do something because of fear. And it can be little things. Fear of failure, things. fear of judgment. And then the, the fear of one, fitting in. Fear of fitting in. Fear of fitting in. That's massive now with social. Oh, look, it is. And I think it's, you know, the problem is we, when we're the, you know, young at school, we compare ourselves to the guy beside us because that's what we could. They can compare themselves to everyone in the whole world now through social media. And the thing about social media, it's not a bad thing. It's just this bad things happen on it. It's like you know, alcohol is not bad. It's just bad if you misuse it. Um, and social media is the same. And, and you know, the, the problem is often the worst people on social media are the adults, not the kids. I mean, some of the stuff that our coaches over here put up with, it's just, it's criminal how the people can get away with some of the things they'd say. Because you said that in the street, you know, you wouldn't get away with it. So it is, is how we equip our young people with some of those things that we didn't need equipping with around it. And, and the whole social media one, you know, it was pretty easy. If you went to a party and did something stupid when you're 18, when I was 18, no one knew, there's no pictures. If someone did get a picture, the chance of being in focus is pretty minimal. It's on a pole, right? Take two weeks to, <laughs> exactly, it would take two weeks for it to get developed anyway. Where now everything is this instant, uh, you know, you, you, the good things in your life are extenuated, but so are the negative things in your life um, showing. So it's it's giving our kids uh, ability to understand, you know, that values piece become a bit of a valueless society. We value the wrong things around, you know, we don't. We hold people up who are successful for what they've done, not who they are. So it's quite a confusing little world for our young people because we say, look, success is working hard and you know, showing leadership and caring for people and being kind, yet society rewards other people for doing things. So, yeah, it's an interesting place to be at the moment. Are you still doing work in school? I know a couple of years ago you were working a few days in schools. Yeah. Yeah, look, I stopped it because of travel. Um, the, the, I was at Christ College my last school I worked at. I was just doing two days a week there as Director of Wellbeing, um, which I really enjoyed. But then I was away with the Black Caps for about two months because it was during COVID time. And the school was really incredibly um, supportive and gave me the time off to, to go and do that. Then the next year, we had Com Games and World Champs Athletics because of COVID. So I was going to be away another two months. And I just couldn't. I said, look, this isn't fair. You, you actually need someone here full time. Uh, I'm going to be away again. And this year, again, I would have been away another two months. So I, I stepped aside. I still keep in contact with most of the schools and still do a bit of work with the, with the sports teams. But uh, it just wasn't fair to keep asking for time off around it. So, yeah, not anymore. It could be pretty cool having Mr. Quinn as a teacher at school learning this. I've, I've said on this podcast a number of times, I remember some really useless formulas that I from mathematics that doesn't help me navigate life and some of the challenges I've had or challenges my athletes have. But I can fill up a tank, John, because volume equals four-thirds pi r cubed. So you can imagine if there's more Mr. Quinns yep. working with schools like Christ College. Fundamental skills that are just going to give you a head start in life. Look, I, and I think there are. I mean, that's insane. I, I think schools, and we're, to be fair, following Australia. Aussie have done a lot more stuff around that post psychology wellbeing piece than Aussie compared to us. But there's so many schools, you know, when I was at Christ College, we had a principal there, Garth, one who was ironically from Australia, who saw the need for the stuff. And Christ College, you know, it was a very traditional boys' school in Christchurch. And he really, you know, took on trying to 
change some of that culture, you know, keeping the, the bits which are really important there, but also understand our, our kids have changed. And this is the bit, you know, I was at rugby the other day talking to the academy managers and look, you know, how do we evolve our academy? Because the kids are different. We can't, you know, gone in the days, you know, I remember it probably turned about seven, eight years ago when you'd go to a young player, 18, right there in the academy, right, what are your goals? That was really clear, Crusader or Black. It was never a hesitation. And then about five, six, seven years ago, where it was, you know, what's your goal? To be a professional rugby player. Who for? Don't care. And that's a massive, subtle, but massive shift around how they see things now. It's like, well, how do we adapt to that? Because, you know, we've got Crusaders, have got Crusaders tattooed on them, the emblem you know, around it. And I'm just wondering, will we still have that? And the players in the next five or six years doing that? I don't know. Maybe we will, but... Um, and this is the bit with the all-black jersey, same thing. Is that it, it was always a, the selling point or the bit that kept people there was the all-black jersey. I, you know, and, and this is the question I don't know the answer. Is it as revered as it used to be now? Um, because players at 25, 26 are going, and fair enough too, um, there's other, other opportunities for me overseas. So that's going to be the real battle in rugby and, and cricket, to be fair too. I mean, oh, it's crickets, you can make crickets a lot of money that now. chasing the you could not play for the Black Caps, not play for Australia, and you could still earn seven figures if you're getting IPL contracts. Oh. It's so interesting what you said about rugby losing the identity, to paraphrase you. There was a really interesting article in The Australian with Eddie Jones, and he was asked, what's the major difference between being with the Australian team now and after losing to Fiji yesterday morning? I still think we've got some work to do on this. And he said, 22 years ago, our players would come from states, from Queensland, back then New South Wales were the powerhouses. I think 85, 90% of players 20 plus years ago came from those two states. ACT Brumbies then picked up along as well. And they wanted to play for the Wallabies. He said, that's gone. It's totally gone. And some of the work I'm doing in rugby, I'm finding similar. Getting that identity getting people to play for, whether it's your club, whether it's your state, franchise, it's hard. But it's 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 essential, I think, to create a winning culture. Look, it is, and it goes back to your piece about Owen Eastwood stuff around that belonging pieces. You know, I, I was in a business the other day doing a thing about um, you know, high performance in teams, and it was the same thing there. It's, you've got to create that sense of belonging and purpose. And it's all that cliche stuff, but that's your foundation, you know, around it. Otherwise, it becomes a game. You know, the top becomes the top. You know, the, the top. I don't know if we can ever get back to that sacrosanct days of it's so important, but we need to get something that are actually playing for something bigger than what they are. You know, around it, and that's something the Crusaders have looked to do. As the Chiefs have, as the Blues have, everyone's looked to do it. And we've all different teams have had success doing it at different times. But how do we hold on to that? Because it could be, it's easy to lose this. You know, around it, and I think that's the real challenge for coaches is that real buy-in. Because you know, come December, every Super team in Australia and New Zealand will all sit down and go, right, what's the goal this year? We want to win. Well, okay, well, what, what, how are we different from everyone else who's saying that? And I think that's the art of coaching is how do you get people really to buy into a bigger picture than just winning a game of rugby or a game of cricket or netball or whatever it is. And I think the good coaches or the great coaches do that and they spend time on that. That's the key thing is they really push it. It's not something you do at the start of the season, pre-season, right, we're done now. Let's, let's go to the real stuff. They really believe in it. Um, and I think the best coaches I work with just, you know, they're not better technically or tactically. They're better at that stuff. Let, let's uh, come back. We'll come back to mental skills. I've still got some questions. I think it's a really nice segue and a great podcast on talking to someone like you, articulate and lots of enthusiasm. Let's go down into the rabbit hole now. I call it the art and science of winning. We'll come back to mental skills. 
I don't know who coined this quote. I think you're a good one to ask. It has come from New Zealand somewhere. I heard Walshie say it. It's step back, step up, pause, and step forward. Step in. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it was in Kerry's. It was in Kerry's. Kerry's book. So whether it is, I mean, look at the end of the day, none of us own any of this. It's all we've all ripped off. <laughs> it's all shared pieces, IP. <laughs> pieces around it. Yeah. But but that step back is a massive one, and that's the day to day thing. Often, you know, when we're working, whether it's an athlete or business, it's how do you how do you step in? Because when you're in the five, and often I use the analogy, it's almost you imagine you're watching a movie. You know, if you think about your thoughts, you're actually watching a movie. You're not in the movie. You're just watching them. It's just on the screen. But once you get in the movie, it's really hard to step back and see the bigger picture around it. And I think because none of us were taught around emotions or our internal state, you know, we, we, we were taught you know, at school, we were told about your internal state and the thing and it feels sometimes that's okay, you'll feel happy, sad, excited, joyful, frustrated, but we weren't told about that stuff. So the more we can get people to understand around feelings are okay, this is quite normal. If you can step back from those feelings and be okay with the feelings, then we can actually start to manage those feelings. We can then start responding, not reacting. The reason we've got so many young men in prisons and he's on is because they react. They don't step back, they step in, you know, around it. And, and they react to a Saturday night after a couple of beers and they punch someone. And it's like, how do we teach our, people, our young people around managing themselves? Because I wasn't taught that at school. Mm, same. I had to learn the hard way. And, and thankfully, like you, I had some good role models and coaches through the Institute yeah. of Sport. Another guy named John Quinn, actually, same name as you. I'm sure you've had an identity yeah. mistaken example <laughs> over the years. When Walsh yeah. said, oh, do you want to talk to my mate John Quinn? I went, John Quinn, he's track and field coach. No, 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 different John Quinn. <laughs> hey, but can we yeah. apply that to you? And can I step out of you as the humble person? And you Kiwis, you're all very humble. I love that about Kiwis. And can we step into the performer? So can you step back with me and, and maybe do it with me so you can actually go through the movement. So step back, yeah. yep. step Sitting up, back, yeah. step up, pause. Yep. And then if you can give an objective view on what you think you, John Quinn, have done over the past seven years working with the Canterbury Crusaders, what, what do you think you've done to help the coach, the coaches, create a winning culture? Because it's, it's a legacy. In, if you look in world sport, it's right up there. That's one of the examples of just dominance. Oh, look, I, it, I've been really fortunate. It's an amazing team, and I will kind of deflect this a little bit because it's not one thing I've done or one thing everyone else has done. It's been a combination of really uncomfortable meetings, uncomfortable conversations because standards are very high there, you know, around it. And what they've done as a team – the team is beyond the team. It's it's the marketing team. It's the commercial team. It's the whole business around it. And you've had a leader there, and Scott Robinson. You know, go back to that care piece, which was really high on him. So you're reinforcing the coaches' philosophies around them. And you had some amazing coaches there. You know, from Razor to Jason Ryan to Leo McDonald, Brad Moore, Ron Agara, um, to the current ones you've got now, uh, Andrew Goodman. You got Dan James and. Arms now there and new ones and pens and um, Matt Todd coming through. So we've been able to kind of build on Razor's vision because that, that's the key thing. You know, that leadership piece, and we can never underestimate the power of a good leader. Um, and that's from the top and all the way through the team. And we've had some amazing leaders within the team, but also amazing coaches who lead too. So it's been part of a, a big juggernaut basically. And my role shifts from working with the coaches to working with the players to working with support staff to just. I suppose all of us are little bits of glue and then this whole big picture, um, basically around it. And sometimes it's knowing when to get out of the way. 
uh, and sometimes it's knowing when to get in the way. And I've been really lucky is that because, as said, it, it's a pretty direct culture, so you're told really clearly if you go in the right direction and you're told if you're not you know, around it. So I think everyone just contributes their own little bit around it and my contribution is around reinforcing and supporting the players, supporting the players who are playing well and how they keep playing well and then supporting the players who are not playing at all and how they manage that. And that that's a real key to, to any big teams is because the players who aren't playing, they can become cancerous. And particularly since COVID, when before COVID, they go to South Africa, it was a great time to, to connect as a team, but also there was always some games that year you can make sure everyone had a run. Then after that, when we had just the New Zealand one, it would have become quite hard because some guys wouldn't play as much. And that's what the value of the coaches did really well was made those players go back to your belonging piece, felt part of the team that reinforced them. You know, the, the guys who trained the other team during the week, they were just as valuable as the guys that played. So look, my role in that is, is just supporting all that and it's not, a thing or one thing it evolved and underpins it might be a slightly different role might be the same role um, around it but it, it was as I said you know a lot of people ask that question I keep sitting back and going you know what was it well the equation was pretty simple you know great vision good leadership great players great coaches you put that all together and have really high standards and that are driven by the players you start getting pretty good results great great vision great leadership great coaches I just think most sporting teams would say, hey, we've got really good coaches, we're professional, we've got a really good vision. But they haven't. Okay, what's the difference? So I, I, look, I, I, the big difference for me, there's a couple of things. One is the detail, okay? And I look at it, you know, when I go and watch other teams or go and observe and I think, yeah, this is really good, this is the same, but there's no detail. You know, the, 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 what Ray's and the coaches I thought were really good at and I learned a lot from was that detail piece. Nothing was left to chance. So they'd really drill down. You know, they'd be clear on what is that word, what does aggression mean? We're talking, you know, we want to be aggressive and dominant. What does that mean? That's the word, what's the action? And such a simple thing. But what does aggression mean to you compared to him, compared to him? And they do their detail. You watch a review and the detail of the review, it wasn't the big stuff because we know we do that well. That's the little stuff. And that's something, I think something I really learned around what does that look like? So, and I, and I suppose that's for me, you know, when I look at different models or equations, often athletes want to be confident. And in the end, I'm just sick of talking about confidence because when you say, what do you mean by confidence? No one really answers. They go, oh, it feels good. So you, so you want to feel good. For me, it's around that clarity piece. And I hear it over and over again because if you've got really good clarity, it generally allows you to commit to what you're doing. Generally, if you can commit to what you're doing, a lot easier to focus because you're not second-guessing yourself. If you do those three things well, you will generally perform, which will build your confidence. But often we want confidence first. We want to feel good. Where for me, it's you can not feel good but have clarity. So let's get you clear. What clarity do you need to do the job? What clarity do you need to do that presentation? What clarity do you need to execute that game plan? And I look at the boys. You go in there on a Monday morning. They're all there with their books out. And I remember saying this years ago. I was sitting there with one of the analysts, and it was a Monday morning, and the boys were in the room on their computers on their books. And I said, mate, everyone else is probably doing this. What what would be different? And he, he said, yeah, it's the detail. They're having really good, honest, robust discussions. And one of the strengths of all those coaches was they would hit you between the eyes if you needed to be hit between the eyes. But it was coming from a place of care. You know, it wasn't coming from a place of blame themselves. And you hear J.S. Ryan talk about this a lot, and that was what they're good at. When we didn't win, the first thing the coaches would do is look at their own processes. A lot of pro coaches would look at the team. Would the team do well, do wrong? Where they would go, right, what do we do wrong first? Do we prepare them well? Did we do this too much? Not enough. And it's all that stuff there. It's all the stuff people go, yeah, yeah, but they don't do it. 
And that's the difference for me is that doing those little stuff that no one really sees, it's easy not to do, and they do it incredibly well. Because as you said, everyone's got great players, great coaches, similar systems, but they do that little stuff more consistently. Summarising what I've taken out of that is embracing uncomfortableness, really honest conversations. Care, there's a real compassion there, a vision, as you said, from Razor and it's been passed on. Because that's the other fascinating part for me as someone who works in sport and and looks at the Crusaders as a benchmark, as an example. It's not just one coach the whole time, not just one group of support staff. You've had multiple changes, but the vision, the culture stayed the same, got role clarity. I really like that. But then it's Almost the boring stuff, you know. People, no, no, come on, JQ, give me the, give me the acronyms, the mnemonic. There must be a charity, but they won't take our freedom. The William Wallace story. It's like, no, just do the basic shit really, really well. Oh, I look at it. You know, I think the longest team talk I heard Razor do on a match day in the change room was about forty-five seconds, sixty seconds. You know, they they just know how to get the guys ready. They know how to play finals footy, and they know who to pump how to pump them up, you know, and it's just, again, it goes back to that. They understand the person in front of them, you know, understand your team, you can respond to what their needs are. But too many coaches have their own needs to be met. It's like before a game, how many coaches talk too much before a game? Because it's their own, it's their own anxiety to try and get through. And they're very good at knowing what the team needed. They're very good at having those really strong relationships with the leaders, the guys in the squad. And again, don't worry, this ain't perfect, you know. Um, There'll be guys there who struggled at times and probably weren't enjoying it as much as they should have been around it. So it's not a perfect um, scenario. But I can't underestimate that care piece. I just don't think we talk about it, but I think they lived it and they lived it more consistently. What's an example of how they live care or a player example on care well it's just small chats it's like part of coffee chats that are really important part connecting with the guys so it's in the schedule it's not like hey guys make sure you catch up this week they put it in the schedule they value it to make sure the guys do it around it there's the arm around the guys and actually it's been authentic and around i actually care about you who's in your family they're actually taking the time to have those conversations and this is about people don't want to hear because they're too busy to do that or I did that two months ago. What else do you want me to do? Well, be authentic about it. Actually really care. So when they have a conversation with me, Johnny, things, you know, it's a bit of a struggle. I haven't played for a wee bit and mum's a little bit unwell. They remember that. And the next week, hey, how's mum? You know, human being versus human doing. And they focus on the human being first. Mm, I like that. And the human doing will sort itself out. And the coffee right. chats, that's in the schedule, just like you have a skills session, you might have recovery, you have massage, physio, S&C, strength and conditioning. It's put in their coffee chat at a set time. It's valued. It's valued, basically, in the morning. You know, I go and have your coffee chats in the senior. Um, sometimes, you know, the coaches will go, right, we're going to go over the cafe and have the chats, have coffee, have the coffee cart there sometimes, as, you know, that's something for the boys. And there's the value. And again, it doesn't make this a perfect system. It doesn't mean they're always going to win, but it's around – this is a system where people can hopefully be themselves. It goes back to whether that's like safety place because you're a young player, you walk into the Crusaders the first day, it's very intimidating. You know, you've literally got some legends of the game sitting there. And I think they're very good at bringing those guys through from the academy into the team and they're very good at budding people up. And again, I keep using that word, there's authentic care towards each other. There's authentic relationships in that team who they generally care about each other and you can't buy that stuff. So... When your back's against the wall and your mate's beside you, you're prepared to go to war with that guy. Now, that's been driven from a head coach of an organisation um, and it just keeps dripping down. So 
it's as I said, it's been pretty cool journey to watch and observe and be part of. But again, you've got to give a lot of credit to, to, to those leaders and those coaches. Mm. They've driven most of this. And I can see that even when I said to you, step back, step up, pause, I can feel, I can see, I can hear the collegiality. Like if you've contributed, you wouldn't stay there for that long, mate, if you're not contributing. But I love this sense of us and team. So one last question before we step forward, because I want to talk about Japanese rugby as well. How are you going yeah. to reinvent? What are you doing to come out and be fresh next year? Because I can imagine yeah, first or second year, bang, then third, fourth. What do you do to keep reinventing? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and it's one I need to think about <laughs> the next week while before I catch up with Ben's around it. Look, I, I suppose, again, it's just tying into their themes of what they're doing. And, and you know, I've done, I read a lot. And it's about taking as a bit of a theme that we can use this year and tie that into mental skills along with the other themes. So, but the reality is also it's the other part to me kind of goes, yeah, but let's get them used to being bored again because we don't let kids be bored anymore. You know, they, I was coming back to Aussie the day and this is not a criticism of these parents and we get it in this shuttle to go to the airport and then this parent gets on with two kids and sits get down, he's probably five, six years of age, gives them his phone straight away, gives the phone, start playing the game. You know? So he's sitting there for an hour playing this game. I thought, let them be bored first and if he really plays that, maybe give it some later on, but we just don't let the kids be bored. And it's the same with sometimes in the space. You know, we don't jazz up the gym at all. You're still lifting the weight, mate. You know, we don't jazz up running at all. You're still going to run. And so part of me, yes, I think we've got to make it fresh and new and, and try and challenge them at times around things. But you still get your basics in place. You still got to make sure you've got to sit there and lift them. Because for me, focus is the currency of performance. And we have a world that's so unfocused because we don't need to be. So how do we actually teach and this is always that bit about mental, you know, any sessions or classroom stuff we do is part of me likes it when we do a late session at seven o'clock at night with the academy and I know they're tired. It's like, hey, boys, well, what are you going to do if this is a game? Seven o'clock at night, you're tired. It's been a long day. You have a choice of switching on or switching off. And often the academy boys like switch off at times because they're not quite ready for it. But again, it goes back to that uncomfortableness. How do we, we can't make it easy during the week and expect it to be hard in the weekend. And one of the phrases we had this year is, you know, if you want to play in the jungle, you can't live in the zoo. So what does the jungle look like day to day? What does the zoo look like? So there's a separation between both of them. But I think too many of us want to sit in the zoo and get fed and looked after all the time and be world-class. Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large-scale programs to our corporate clients, and we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life Score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our Mental Skills Calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro-lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. 
In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialise in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energised and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon, so watch this space. Jeremy Snape, I don't know if you've met Jeremy in your travels. He's worked with multiple teams around yeah. the world. Yeah, good English guy, Jeremy, former cricketer. He talks about the brilliant basics, or Jeremy says in his accent, brilliant basics, he says. That's right. It's the little things. Oh, look at this. And then as I look at some of the athletes I work with, they just do their basics well. And I've like, I worked with Tom Walsh for a number of years, the shot putter since he was probably 18, 19. And, you know, so probably every second year or so, I travel them to the States. And it's a really boring lifestyle. You know, nine o'clock is a bit, you know, seven o'clock up, stretching, breakfast, go to the gym, stretch again, do the little things well. It's all that stuff. Everyone goes, oh, I could do that. It's like, no, you can't because you wouldn't do it. And if it's a 10 minute stretch, you should stretch for eight minutes and go, I'm good. You know, he does that little stuff, which is unsexy and seen as boring. But he just does it all the time. That's what, for me, that's what separates it, is that. That's why he's been a, a beast, though. That's why he's continued to yeah. perform on the stage. Yeah, but he does that little stuff well. You know, we often we stay, you know, it goes back to the atomic habits thing, intensity over consistency. Often we, we start with the real intensity but we don't keep the consistency side of it. And I think the best athletes I look at or the most successful people outcome-wise is it's not rocket science while they do it. You know, they, they just do that little stuff really, really well. And that's the bit people don't want to know about. They, as you said, they want the hack. What's the five? What's the secret? Yeah, the secret is there is no secret. You know, but everyone wants the secret. No secrets, but you hopped on a plane. You would have travelled or you... I think you started working with Japanese rugby in COVID, so just run with my story anyway. You hopped on a plane, you travelled about 11 or 12 hours north, you arrive at Narita Airport, Tokyo, and you're going to go and start working with the Kubota Spears. Japanese culture, a long, long way behind the 20 years of mental skills work that has been going on in New Zealand. That must have been a huge challenge for you to go into a, a, a franchise. And, and can I say thank you, because I'm starting to do some work as well uh, with the nice. Black Rams in Tokyo. And you've been a great mentor for me to, to try and navigate this. So, mate, thumbs up. Can't wait till we play you and hopefully beat you. <laughs> and, and you'll never share anything with me again. Uh, uh, but, but what I'm learning on that, it's a very different culture to what I work with in NRL or what you're doing in rugby. So tell me, how did that start or how did you start working in that culture, that environment? Look, it started off initially because Ryan Crotty was over there and he came back and, and said to me, look, I had a coffee with him and he goes, look, there's no mental skills there. And Ryan Crotty, he's, he's a great man, he's a great culture man, he's a great mental skills man. So I'm like, you're great in this space, I'll give you some resources and you go back and, and do it. And he goes, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. So anyway, three weeks later, must have been during COVID, he must have gone back, what was the one? Oh, yeah, 2020 or 21, whatever it was, and um, he rings and goes, it's not working, yeah, happy to have a chat with the coach. I went, sure. So I spoke to Franz Luger, who's the coach again, South African coach, very black and white, but very values-driven, and really wanted to grow the space. So that's, I use that word fortunate or lucky. I had someone here who really wanted it and wanted to wanted to learn from him. I had Ryan Crotty there, Bernard Foley, who were really good advocates of this. So I suddenly had someone in the camp to drive some of this because the first two years was all over Zoom with a translator. 
So, because I couldn't get there because of COVID. So, honestly, and and that would have been so of, challenging. Stage, it was honestly sometimes I get off the Zoom and go, "Oh my gosh, that was just a shambles." And because of COVID, they had to be in two different rooms. He had two rooms on your screen. He had translators. Internet wasn't always great. It was just honestly, I thought. I'm not going to keep this good for very long. So I thought, let's just do it as well as you can for a year and see what happens. But anyway, it seemed to land and um, did the next year again. And then 2022, yeah, I was able to get over there. So I was able to get, and that was great because suddenly I, I saw the setup. I saw how it was. I met the people face to face. Like, you know, your biggest asset there are your translators. So I was able to sit down with them and I still need to do more in that space with them because you can't use stories or antidotes or, or humour because it doesn't always translate. So my humour doesn't always translate, once. John, and I don't have an interpreter. <laughs> <laughs> God help me in Japan. <laughs> yeah. So it's just changed. Often I use humour or I use a story. and you can, So I had to be quite clinical initially how I was doing it. But once I got there and you met people, and it goes back to, you know, that relational engagement, form some relationships, get a bit of picture of it, allow me then to do it a bit better. So then I was there in November and I was there again in February, and then I'm going back again in November this year. So, and again, it was the same thing. It started with the basics, and I mean, they had no basics. And, and a lot of it was around really unpacking success and those outcome goals because they were very outcome driven. You know, what's a good game, winning, okay, what else, scoring a try. Um, so it was just trying to just slowly chip away at some of the, the mindset piece around it and just trying to lower a bit of growth mindset in there. And, Simple stuff for setting goals, and this is where Crotts and, and Bernard were with winning goal because they would drive this with the coaches. So there was a consistent voice. So there was a couple of other leaders here, players from South Africa who were really good. So they were able to kind of take the bits from me that they found helpful and just keep reinforcing it, reinforcing it. So this is my fourth year, I think, third or fourth year there, and it's slowly getting out. And I look at it in most sports, it takes four or five years to embed some of this stuff because. You reckon that long? Four or five? Yeah, wow. Oh, well, a lot of the older players were tolerated. And this is a very generalised statement. And this is in all sports, I find. Because, again, they're not too sure about it. We're now, and the beauty, where I've been very lucky in this space is they actually won. So if you're, if you're giving them a new tool or a new school and they go and win it, just re- give us some evidence of it. Um, so the first year, I think we came fourth, then we came third, and then they won it. Yes, my fourth year. Um, so there's little bits of evidence they can kind of go, oh, this is, maybe this is working. And I remember when I first started doing this work, I worked with the Canary Tactics or Mainland Tactics in those days, netball. And now we had, I was there for nearly 12 years, I think. I think we lost nearly every game. And the first year we came sixth. Then after that, literally, I think we had seasons we actually didn't win a game at all. So it allowed me then to get real clear of what success actually looks like as a practitioner because it couldn't be on that we're winning. And the biggest challenge for those girls at times is they were given a game plan but because you weren't winning with that game plan we tend not to trust that game plan and so where i was fortunate with the japanese boys is as they started getting a bit more success it allowed them to kind of think oh maybe this is working a wee bit and they've just made some little subtle changes about how they do things and even from the coaching side the coaches are really awesome they really want to get better so it goes back to that bit about it. you says if you've got people that want to get better and they've got an open mind it's unlimited what we can do but it's when you have people who think they want to get better, but they don't want to change. Well, you can't get better unless you change. Japanese culture is very – it's it's different to the Australia Kiwi culture. Yeah, yeah, let's do all this stuff and perform. It's it's almost – not passive-aggressive, but we'll sort of nod and then walk away and don't do it. So I'm really curious, have you, have you got the Japanese players as well embracing this now? Oh, 
Look, I'm not going to say yes with conviction, but I think we're getting there. Um, and it's just been respectful for the culture, talking to, especially the translators, okay, is this appropriate? How does this word translate? Is there another word we can use a Japanese word around it? So, like, I'm sure I've stumbled and done things that probably weren't that great, but they've been able to kind of direct us and get us in the right way. And look, particularly young ones, look, we had some rookies last year, and they love the space. I mean, you know, I was over there, they're just consistently asking questions with the translator you know, around it. And so they really get this. But it's no different from when you go into another team. Often the young ones really see this as being interesting. The older ones, you know, because some people's experience in mental school sports psychology isn't great. Especially if they come from a def- yeah, deficit model. You only go see the sports arc if you drop on the high ball, yeah. got the yips, you know, nicking the ball every outside edge you get. So, yeah, it, it, exactly. it has changed. And thankfully... Yeah, so that's allowed, I think, a bit more normality of it. As I said, I think probably the first couple of years, because I wasn't there, it was like, you know, what is this? Uh, and particularly, I remember when I got there and I sat in their team room and I was looking at the screen, I was going, oh, my gosh, they're all sitting here because there's quite a 50-odd players. Looking at the screen, me talking, translator, translating, I thought, oh, my gosh, no wonder they knew nothing or didn't listen. So, yeah, we'll just tighten some of those things up. And, again, that's going to be the nice wee challenge for you. If you can get over there and see how it works, it just allows you to kind of understand how they do things. But look, overall, look, I think they're open to it. Yeah, there's, there's some cultural areas on it. We need to be aware of on how do you use the strengths of their culture, but also use that as a, a foot the door to move them forward. I'm excited. I can't, can't wait to get over there. I'm over there in about a month. Nice. Can't yeah. wait to oh, nice. learn. And it's, like you are just saying then, it's so different. You're applying skills, but you can't just come in and, and drop them exactly the same as you've done. So I'm looking forward no. to the challenge as well and a bit of friendly yep. banter with you. Hey, last question on this, and I just do want to go back to pressure. How's your Japanese going? At the start, I've tried to get a different word each time and use it, and I haven't done that for a while. I also need to start because I think it's just a nice, respectful way of, of trying. So when I was there last time, I did the first time I went there, every time I did a session, I'd if it was morning, I asked what's the word for morning or what's the word for this or afternoon or night time. So I need to get better at doing that because it's just another, it's showing you're making an effort. And I think that's always nice within any cultures. Even if you get it wrong, it's still we actually make the effort. So look, it's not where it needs to be, but it's certainly one I need to get better at. Nihongo wa wakarima san. So you're already ahead of me, mate. <laughs> mate, that's all I've got. I'm, I'm tapping out. That's all I've got. All right, pressure. You say, a lot of times pressure is perceived. It's not real. It's in our heads. So the main piece is your perception of pressure. The biggest piece of work is around it. Some of it comes down to your beliefs about pressure and yourself. This is very heavily linked to identity. That just jumps out at me, that piece. Yeah, look, pressure is an interesting concept because we feel it, but we can't see it. And the reality is it gets in the way of us sometimes. And I look at pressure as any distraction now. Because um, often we talk about performing with pressure. Or, well, no, for me, it's just performing with distractions. And that distraction could be the scoreboard that creates the pressure. It could actually be pressure in yourself because you have expectations or you want you want to win. So for me, it's unpacking. It goes back to, you know, what is creating this pressure for you? you know, is it the expectations? Is it for a failure? Is it leaving people down? What are you actually worried about? And, and this is the bit. And I use Tom as a good example. I can talk about the story because he's talked about it publicly. But when I first met him, he was 19, I think, and he had just been to a junior world champs. And in the practice round before he threw, I think he threw 20 metres. And in the competition, he threw 17. So obviously a massive difference. And I said to him, look, mate, well, what happened? And he goes, I cracked under pressure. And so suddenly then I opened this door for us to do some work around what that meant, where a lot of people, when they don't cope with pressure, you go, what happened? And cricket is a shocking, but that's what happened. Oh, 
it was just either hit, I just didn't get it, or I was unlucky today, or it was a good catch, or whatever it is. And they're not owning, you're fixing the wrong issue. And I look at it, go back to that vulnerability piece. I think the best athletes are just really honest and they can actually go, actually, look, the guy bumped me three times in a row, getting stuck in the back foot, and I just got a hung there because of my focus shifted. That's why I nicked out. Cool, let's, let's not fix facing the bouncer, let's fix, I believe, the focus we're facing um, the bouncer. So for me, pressure is an interesting concept around it, and we all of us we all of us feel it, and then it's understanding what are the tools you need to use when you do feel it, because it's not about getting rid of pressure or distractions. It's being aware of what are the ones you need to plan for, and then what are the tools you need to manage that, knowing even when you use all your tools, it still may be uncomfortable. And that's the key part. I think people think, if I nail the space really well, I will feel better. Yeah, potentially you may, but if you're in front of 50,000 people and, you know, there's money on this and there's expectation, you might guess is you may not feel good. If you get into the zone, you feel great, I enjoy that. But if you don't, let's be okay with that. Um, you don't have to feel good to do good. It just feels good. I, I like that because as I was a runner coming through, I, I didn't have access to that. You know, my story John, I was a good runner, not great, and I got to the level I believed I could, won multiple state championships. And if I didn't feel good, I go, oh, shit, I'm not going to perform well. But I've learned, I've been blessed to work with a number of athletes who've gone to a much, much higher level than I did. And they've learned that, that even if you feel shit, you can still perform. So I, I, I like you oh. talk about those basic tools before you've said you start with mindfulness and breathing. So it's really just centering and being present. I know you talk about grounding yourself, you know, being where your feet are, focusing on the task, they're, they're basic skills. So that's what's really come out of this interview with you and preparing. It's the basics done done well over and over and over. So it's repetition, repetition, repetition. So I can see under pressure, you just do what you've trained, reps and sets. Well, look, there's an, and cricketers are again, golfers to a point, you know, because they want to feel good. I want to get it there and feel good. It's like, well, you know, Mitchell Stark's not going to give you a half volley so you feel good first ball. He's probably going to try and take your head off. So let's, let's prepare for that. And there's a great Michael Phelps imagery interview and he talked there about he prepares for what he wants to happen, but then he also prepares for what could happen. And this is about when we talk about mental preparation, is that, you know, yes, imagine what you want to happen, but let's be honest, let's be realistic here. And I think the All Blacks did this really well to 11, you know, listening to some of the stories is, they prepared for the what-if scenario. So what if this happens? What if France score and we're behind or whatever? So when it happens, we're accepting of it. And that, that word acceptance is a massive one because often we will fight it. You know, I don't want to be losing. You know, we can't lose a game. It's accepting, you no, know, cricket is a game where you will get out. Let's accept that now, okay? It's, it's Tuesday today, you're playing Saturday. 99% chance you'll get out on Saturday. So let's accept that now. So what are you going to do between start and the pushing? And that's the bit you can control around it. So... Um, the more people understand mental prep isn't just on the sad day breathing, it's too late. Uh, mental prep's not just being mindful as you walk out to battle, whatever you're doing. It's the ability, what are you doing during the week to mentally prepare for whatever battle you'll have coming up and how much mental prep do you need, whether it's about tactical stuff and being clear on what the game plan is or what your role is to, the, to your what-if scenarios. So when those things happen, we respond, not react um, around it. And I think the best athletes, again, just do better preparation throughout the week because, as I said, rugby is a prime example. On a Monday through to Saturday, if you go into a super team and I was in a super team and he's on, that'd be pretty similar, you know, in the sense of the structure of their week. But your difference is what are they doing mentally as a team, as individuals, and what are the conversations they're having? Talk to me about colours. 
Not Roy Dubuv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. Let's go red and blue. It's a process I've heard you talk about. That's Cherry Evans, red head, blue head. Is that the origin? Yeah. Yeah, look, Cherry Evans brought it. It was a few years ago now. So he basically came up with an analogy, and he obviously, I'll, I'll, I'll butcher this a little bit, but I suppose what he looked at is, is blue head is, is your calm, your focus, you're on task. It's where most of us need to be. But red is basically your focus, your attention is shifted. And that's how I simplify it is that blue is your on task, red is your off task. Now, they're not good or bad places. Okay. It's not, I've got to be in the blue all the time. A lot of players will talk about they need a bit of red because sometimes being a bit of red is a bit more aggressive, a bit more on basically around it. So it's just that awareness piece of where I'm at the moment. Okay, my shift, my attention shifted. That's the third penalty row against me. I'm getting a bit frustrated. You know, I'm starting to self-doubt myself, whatever it's called. So what's my process to get back into that? And that's, you know, many different ways of doing that. But that awareness piece, and, and again, the best leaders are self-aware. The best athletes are self-aware because, you know, you can't regulate something you're not aware of. If you're not aware that you're getting off task or you're getting really aroused or under aroused, you can't then do an intervention. And the body's an amazing thing because it gives you clear evidence, pain. So if you hurt yourself, there's clear pain. It's just, it's, hey, stop running. But we're not very good at listening to the, the, the hints that our brain gives us that we're not on track either. So the best athletes are just more aware of this is where I want to be. But when I start shifting, what do I notice that? Is it a bit more negative self-talk? Is it I get a bit more frustrated with the referee? Is it my body language is shifting? What are those things I need to be aware of? Which very likely could happen if they don't. I enjoy that moment. But what do I need to pick up on so I'm not getting myself all the way down to the other end of it? I'm actually sort of just bubbling around here. And so Kerry's model has been used throughout sport New Zealand and probably around the world. And I'm sort of bastardising it a little bit as I'm talking. But for me, a lot of people will sit in the middle of that in the purple. Yeah, because when you're in the blue, it's almost you're, you're you're on point, mate. You're in the zone. You're on. But we know we don't get there enough, so the purple is a bit of both. You kind of fluctuate in between both, and it's just that little bit of awareness. Because you know, between balls and cricket, hey, let your attention shift. A lot of athletes will do that. You know, they look at the look at the crowd or look at the scoreboard. In 2020, you have to do that. Your attention shifts to the scoreboard, right? So over to game 22, that's the process of going from that back into right. This is where I need to be again. What I've really enjoyed about today is getting to, to sit and reflect and listen. If I get all meta on you, the the outcome of this that you're teaching your athletes is self-efficacy. So talk about Albert Bandura, the godfather of self-efficacy, and that's the agency to control you know, what's in front of you, to control the situation. And if I look at everything you've spoken about today, and I know there's more, but you start with the basics like breathing and mindfulness before that who are you yeah you're an athlete but you're so many things around that you've got this broader identity the well-being piece that fits into that the leadership that fits into that and then you talk about handling pressure giving really good models visual models so people are tapping into imagery and different ways of learning recovery having a bit of fun stretching people I just see that when you work with an individual or a team you're skilling them with a whole bunch it's like a toolbox and then I'm assuming that the athlete then draws on the toolbox because you're not there out in the middle of the field or in the pool on the track. You know, you said Mitchell Stark's bowling at your head, the ball's zipping around everywhere. You then teach the athletes to pull out the right skill at the right time. Yeah, and that's the bit. And cricket's a really good example of this. It's a lot of the cricket boys I work with. You know, when they get 100, I never text them because I know they'll get plenty of texts. It's when they miss out three times in a row, I text them and go, right, well, what was your success today? You know, what was your goal today? What was your success? So remind them. Of, you know, you can do everything right. You know, two plus two, unfortunately, in sports, sometimes five. 
You know, you just actually don't get your outcome, particularly sports where there's less control. And cricket's a good example of one. You can do everything right and still nick out. Other times you play and miss that same ball or you nick and it goes between the keeper and the, and the slip. So if they can, and this is that real cliche part, but if they can fall in love with mastering the craft, if they can fall in love with getting that 1% better and coming out just over a week sometimes or every day because that's not possible, but if they fall in love with that, the outcomes are relevant. That's kind of your hundreds and thousands on top of the cake. But from my experience, you know, the great athletes, they just love getting better. And it's drawing down those little things, whether it's their nutrition, whether it's their technique, whether it's their leadership. They just love, and every day it's about getting that little bit better. And I was, some of the athletes just sit there going, you can see why they're so good because you use that word boredom or mundane. They fall in love with that stuff. You know, you know, they're students of the game. And that's a big thing I'm seeing now with a lot of sports a lot of the young athletes, they're not students of the game. They don't follow the game. They don't watch the game. They don't know all the rules of the game. You know, where the, for my experience, a lot of the great athletes, they're students. They know the game. They know the history. They know the ins and outs. They know everything because that's what they're about. And you can see when they become a student or you can see when the light bulb goes on, can't you? You can just, the athlete oh. goes, ah, and it is, it's the little things, but then... UK cycling team, marginal gains. It's 1% here, 2% there before you realise it's an extra 15, 20% and you're at the top of your craft. Look, particularly at the top level, as I said, you know, it's like me with golf. I've got massive gains to make because my technique's terrible, my tactical area's terrible. You know, so I've got massive gains. But people at the top of the game, that's small gains. I mean, they're not going to, you know, if they're doing a 19 yo-yo, doing a 19-5, ain't going to impact on their performance. You know, lifting another 10 kg in the gym won't impact on the performance realistically. So what is the gain you can make? And, and for me, the top well, generally is that little mental part. What's that little mental bit I can get a little bit better at? And that's, that separates the good from the great. Mm. I want to see what separates you and makes you different as well. John Quinn, this is the part of the interview we call Performance Uncovered. 13 questions. Answer the first thought or collection of thoughts <laughs> that comes to your mind. Question number one, what is your favourite movie? Uh, first Hangover, great movie. <laughs> Control yourself, man. God damn, will you put on some pants? Phil, do not go in the bathroom. Al, just calm down. Sweet. Phil, there is a tiger in the bathroom. What's going on? There's a jungle cat in the bathroom. First, I, I love Hangover. They're awesome movies. Uh, question two. Yeah. I didn't expect that with you. I thought it would have been something more cerebral, something deep. Well, no, well, the reason that is a little bit deep, and I'm going off topic, is that it was my wife and mine, 10th wedding anniversary, I think, and um, we were meant to go to a flash restaurant, and that's probably not our gig. So we booked it, and on the night we went, yeah, it's not us, eh? So we went back to a restaurant where we'd um, first met and used to go there for dates. And so we had a nice night, and then we finished that, and we thought, what are we going to do? And it happened to be a movie theatre there, so we went to this movie, knew nothing about The Hangover at all, walked in, and just pissed ourselves the whole night because it was such a funny movie. So... Again, there's no expectations, so it's a movie that always resonates with me because it was just a, we weren't expecting anything, but I really enjoyed it. Question two, what song do you know all the lyrics to? Oh, my gosh. Oh, if it's going, probably things like The Gambler and that sort of stuff, but I probably couldn't sing off my cuff if the, if the music was going, I didn't have a crack at it yet. We'll put in The Gambler, bit of Kenny Rogers. <laughs> yeah. Got no one to hold him, no one to fold him, no one to yeah. walk away, no one to run. Three, what yeah. food can't you get enough of? I'm big Italian. I love Italian food. You know, when I was going around Europe years ago when I was a youngster, I had about six weeks in Europe. Uh, loved it. Sorry, six weeks in Italy. Loved it. So I'm a big fan of Italian food. But yeah, I'm pretty open to most, but yeah, Italian food I love. Question four. What book has had the biggest impact on your life? 
Look, I read a lot. I mean, it's probably the everything is the next one. I've just read um, The Power of Unway Red Focus, really enjoyed that. Do Hard Things, Steve McManus, I think it is. They all have an impact because there's something you can take out of all of them. So it's probably not one. It's probably a, it's probably the latest one I'm reading at the time. But I, I think any of those are bloody good books. Five, what is your most meaningful possession? Oh, shit. It's, oh, meaningful possession. I know my family's not my possession, but that's always your cliche piece of it is that, you know, my biggest thing I've achieved in my life is still being married and having two beautiful girls. As I said to you, parenting is really challenging. Um, and to do that, we've had a really good family around us to do it. But that's that's probably my most prized thing, but probably something I don't prize enough at times because we get caught up in other stuff, but probably my family. Nice answer. Question number six, what does your weekly fitness routine look like? Yeah, so most days I'll be up at six and I'll go to, go to the gym at high performance and that can be anything from a circuit to, to what bike class to just lifting weights. So I'll try and do that sort of four to five times a week and then weekends if I can, if I'm not working with my wife, I'll go for a walk. Seven, this question we ask everybody, John, but I think it's been purpose written for you with the content we've spoken about. What is your favourite failure? Oh, look, I've got heaps. Uh, look, the tactics and the sense of outcome, that was failure all the time and the sense of outcome stuff, and that was challenging. I remember doing a couple of things with the Crusaders as a team thing, which was just, just didn't work at all. Um, we'll be trying to, I remember one time we were getting them to do a mindfulness activity and then put the sirens on just to kind of jot them out of it, and it just didn't work. Half of them just sat there and carried on going. Other half didn't move. It was <laughs> it fell over completely. Um, good idea at the time, right? It's a good idea yeah, when you started. I thought it was. And then we did another one where there was a mindfulness activity. We had to do a find, you know, where's Wally? So they had to go, right, you've got 20 seconds, the first one that can find two Wallys on the thing. And then we had that kind of ghost that comes out of the screen and jumps out of them, you know, meant to startle them and scare them. And most of them didn't even bat an eye to this going. So... That didn't work very well. But look, I think most years is things I don't do. Not I don't do well, but I, you know, if I'm not scaring myself and trying different things, I'm not living either. So I will try and do different things, even presentations. I, I won't very often do the same presentation. I'll always look to change it to challenge myself or because I've got new information. There's an Australian comedian called Greg Kinney. Wizard, I don't know if you know Greg Kinney. I saw him on Friday night. And he was talking about where's Wally and it used to be yeah. Wally in the shopping centre and he said, COVID fucked that up. Where's Wally? <laughs> Three <laughs> metre social distancing. There he is. <laughs> very, very good adaptation yeah. of where's Wally. Question number eight. What do you do to recharge and switch off? Look, the, the stuff in the morning exercise helps. I've got a good group of mates, obviously married, children and my family. I read a lot, I enjoy reading, just got into golf. Um, so I'm looking, when I say the word try, and I shouldn't say they, they try, I should say I'm doing, I'm trying to get a balance at the moment because I, I love work and this is the problem is that, you know, I can work seven days a week quite easily. So I'm looking to get better at that balance of just switching off a little bit more. So yeah, I really enjoy golf at the moment. Frustrating sport, but it's good because I'm having to learn a new skill and I've had some coaching, which has been good. So it just reminds you of um, what it's like to be an athlete again. Question number nine, I'm curious about the guy that teaches athletes around the world to prepare for key performance moments. What do you do before a big performance moment? So for me, presentations, I do a lot of those. I still get nervous. So it's, it goes back to that clarity piece, being clear what I'm presenting, uh, being clear what the what, what I'm trying to get across. And then often um, I actually use my watch because I know I get nervous, except I know I get nervous. Let's not fight that. So I just do simple breathing stuff. 
Uh, I'll make sure I've got a drink of water with me. I've got something to hold in my hand to soothe. I'll use my watch to check out my heart rate to make sure it's sitting where it needs to sit. So now don't have from athletes is that preparation piece. It's making sure you're ready to go. Does it work all the time? No. Does it work most of the time? Of course it does, and that's the key part. It's never a, a perfect outcome all the time, but it's about managing when it's, when it's challenging. Jeez, I'm glad you said, yeah, it does most of the time because people would have listened up till now and does it work? No. <laughs> None of this shit works <laughs> exactly. at all, <laughs> I don't do it myself, Jam. I just do it with others. Yeah. <laughs> Question 10, uh, what keeps you up at night? Yeah. Look, I don't really know. I sleep pretty well and I'm pretty good at managing things. I, I suppose that for me, it, it, you always want to make sure your family are good and, and you're providing for your family. So anything around security, would, if I was worried about that, would probably keep me up. If I've got a big presentation, that might, I might not get a great night's sleep sometimes. Like, you know, if there's a, a key performance, I want to do really well. But generally, I sleep okay. Um, but I think it's a bit of a cliche answer, but, you know, making sure your family, friends, you're all, all safe. And if they weren't, that's always a, you know, it will keep you up and worry you. 11. What is your number one productivity tip? Take breaks, I'd say. Uh, I think we're not very good at doing that. And we have this. I suppose this kind of myth that we've got to keep working. So the ability to, you know, work for 45 minutes, stop, pause, take a break and, you know, have a bit of a, I'm going to give it to you, but have a plan for the day. But just recharging is, is crucial if you want to be productive. And that's recharging from drinking, drinking water, eating, but also having that break. 11. Who has been your most influential mentor or mentors? Oh, look, I could list 10. I mean, actually, Light initially uh, was outstanding. Pete Sanford, um, Dave Hadfield, Gary Hermanson, Ken Hodge. Kylie Wilson, Campbell Thompson, Dave Galbraith, I mean, uh, Dom Batiste, Rod Corbin. I mean, I, I've been, and I use the word fortunate and lucky here. I've had some amazing people around me. And then, you know, my wife, I mean, she is someone who tolerates me being away a lot, um, working a lot of weekends. You know, I've just got back from being away for two months and her ability to manage that and to support that, you know, it's it's the same with players and anyone. We, we, we need someone there to support us. And she's been an incredible support and mentor for me because she will you know, tell me when I'm getting it wrong too. And that's part of being a mentor is actually supporting not just the good, but when you don't quite get it right. Question 13, what is your definition of high performance? That's a bloody good question. I, I think I, I think for me, it's, it's doing the right thing at the right time in line with the values, goals, and vision of the organisation. And, and I look at the best athletes, they would do what is required at the right time and they'll do the right thing at the right time. And it would be in conjunction with where the organisation wants to go. So if you want to be high performance and the goals and vision is really high, you'll be doing the right things all the time around it. And I think the athletes, as we touched on before, just those little things more consistent um, around it. So I think that, for me, is a definition of high performance. One more question and a call to action. So the final question, in preparing for this, is there a question that you thought I would ask you that I haven't and you want me to ask you? Or do you want to do a flip? Is there a question you want to push back onto me? Not particularly. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping what it's given you, and, and hopefully your listeners too, is that ordinary people can do extraordinary things if they're prepared to do it. But it is really hard, um, you know, around it. And whether it's your work or my work or anyone's work around it, it's surrounding yourself with those right people. And I've been really lucky having right people around me, then also working with some amazing teams, um, you know, around it. So there's no proper question, but I think it's for your listeners to understand is that, you know, nothing comes easy, as we've talked about today, but also it's not be scared of discomfort because that's, you know, you talked about Dave Galbraith, he's a big one around the courage piece. And the thing about courage, to be courageous, you've got to be scared first. So let's get out there and be a bit more scared to try different things to then demonstrate courage. 
And then you go back to that resiliency piece. The only way you can be resilient is actually to go through something. So look for opportunities to test your resilience, not pass fail, but what have you learned about what works today? Because often people talk about we only have one life. Now, we have plenty of lives because we live every day. You only die once. But what are you doing to fill that void? Because um, one day we will go. So what do you want to do? And what do you want to get out of it? Because it's I've seen, as I said, ordinary people achieve, achieve extraordinary things, and it's everyone. I have no doubt that some people listening to this or watching this now we're on YouTube who want to connect with you, talk to you, work with you, follow you. If you've got any capacity, sounds like you're pretty full on sporting teams. Some of those US teams or a premiership. A Premier English Football League with enough pounds could probably get you. So if someone wants <laughs> to connect with you, what's the best way? Just through our website. We're just actually redoing that right at the moment um, in the process of changing that. So probably the website, just at Performance Wellbeing. If you go there.co.nz and you go to, to connect with us and, and we reply to that. You know, I haven't really had a social media presence. And it's not something I've fought back against. It's just not saying it's just not me, but we've talked about what, we, what can we do to – do it as more as an educational tool, not just as a promotion tool. So we will, we have got an Instagram, we haven't used it, but this is the year we're looking to try and get some plans in place to do that for next year. So but probably the, the website is probably the best one. The performancewellbeing.co.nz. Wizard will put that on yeah, the show yeah. notes. We'll put a link to your Instagram so your Instagram followers can bump up. Thank yep. you for today. Thank you for your no, time. Thank you. thank you for helping me outside this and helping me expand on my craft and my job as well i've really enjoyed talking to you and i'm i have no doubt people listening to this even though we've we've dug on mental skills and some of it on leadership and teams anyone listening to this who's in a team especially corporate which is the majority of our audience that and startups slash entrepreneurs the principles that you talk about in building a winning team and sustainability it just runs parallel to every industry so thank you today for a masterclass in that content no look, thank you and again look we are doing more with corporate because it's Again, it all transfers over everything. It's about performance. So how do you get your team, particularly in this day and age, to buy into the work that you're doing? And, um, you know, the, the good corporates do it really well because they have best time in it. So it, it transfers sport to corporate, corporate to sport. Lessons here for all of us. Thanks for your time, mate. Thank you. Hi, it's The Wizard. I'm here in the studio and it's that time of the podcast where we do our reflections. Uh, Andrew's not here with me. He's out somewhere. It's conference season, so he could be anywhere in the country or who knows, anywhere in the world. So, Andrew, I've finally got you nailed down somewhere. Where are you? I don't know. I'm in a hotel room with somewhere. So I know I'm in Australia. It is conference season, that time of year, at time of recording October. I've done 15 events in the last three weeks. I don't know where I am, mate. I'm at Qantas later today. I got asked recently, where do you live? And I said, Qantas. And the lady looked at me like I was, there's a Tom Hanks movie where he lives in the airport, the homeless guy. So I didn't close out the conversation. She's probably saying, there's this guy that's living in the airport, just like Tom Hanks did in that movie. Actually, I do know where I am. I'm on the Gold Coast. I just checked my calendar. But let's review John Quinn. I'll start with you. What, what were your takeouts from the discussion with John? Yeah, the main takeout I had, it may sound pretty simple, but funnily enough, it was just John talking about the simplicity of it all. He doesn't do anything too over the top, you know, according to him, you don't have to climb a mountain and meditate for 20 hours a day to be the best at what you do. He brings it right back to that basic level. Yeah, he adds a bit in here and there. Like he said, he reads something new and he'll try that out, but it always comes back to those basics. And you can't really argue with seven back-to-back championships, can you? Wiz, you are totally aligned with me again in a review. I had three reflections. 
One was no, two was yes, and three was hotbed. So number one, no. JQ is no frills, no fuss, no jazz hands. He just gets on with it. And the, the depth of the work, when we pulled on the thread on a couple of areas on high performance, on the six pillars, when I asked him about the history of mental skills in New Zealand, he could just drop into a real depth. And you can just see the work, the craft, the passion. So while I'm saying no frills, no fuss, no jazz hands, there's such a, a mastery in his craft and it's ongoing. You could easily think that someone would sit there and go, yeah, we've won seven back-to-back titles. This has never been done in world rugby. And when we recorded that, New Zealand were still playing the World Cup on the weekend. They just lost by one point to South Africa. Shannon, in our office, is South African. We know she's been telling us every day. Yes, Shannon, we know South Africa won the World Cup. But New Zealand were being written off at the start. But when you talk to John, I think the All Blacks are very much like that as well. Wiz, no frills, no fuss, no jazz hands, and just get on with it. It's that working culture, but they do the work. They've got the depth. So that was the first bit, the nose. On the yes, it's just yes, yes, yes. What an amazing record he's got in the past 12 months alone. Seventh win with the Crusaders, working in Japanese rugby. They've turned around from being outside the competition four or five years ago. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a coach over in Japan, and he said they've just gone from not even being in the league to coming fourth and then third and talking to John again. No frills, no fuss, no jazz hands. I can see how he aligns with the coach and just works in the background. So it's it's a great achievement. And also, yes to the passion he has around working with young people. When he was talking about Christchurch College and wanting to impact youth and a lot of the work that Quinny does with the academy, that was another learning. He's not just working with the starting team, he's working with the academy, it's the development. So by the time those young men and young women get to, he was around his 21, 22, he was saying in the interview, they're then ready to really go deep. But it's that impact he has by opening up some of those basics at a young age and then coming to him, yes, now I need to go deeper on this. Yes, now I get this because I've had a taste of it. I'm either out of the squad or I'm sitting on the bench or I'm not optimising my talent. I really like the protocol he had in that and that's influenced some of the work I'm doing and the way I'm approaching some of the work I'm doing in rugby. It's going to be interesting when the Waratahs play the Crusaders and I've just officially signed on with the Waratahs Wiz. So yeah, I'm going to be up against John in Japan and in Super Rugby. So I also love with that, that yes to sharing, yes to supporting the development of the game and not holding back and pretending they're secrets. And that ties into number three. When I asked him about that, I've been really curious on this because when you hear about Kerry Evans and Gilbert Anoka and my mate Walshy and then meeting Quinny and a whole bunch of other people as well, that was fascinating back in 2011 with that turning in New Zealand because they had had poor success and weren't winning in those clutch moments that they went, right, let's get together this centralised model. And really interesting, that's what Australian rugby are in the process of doing, is moving away from the five franchises running it themselves, a centralised model where Rugby Australia, RA oversees a lot of the process, the protocol. And you look at Ireland, what they've done in world rugby, Ireland is a population of about eight, eight and a half million, very similar to Scotland. And Ireland have just been a powerhouse, unfortunately, didn't go through in the finals at the World Cup. But you look at what they've also done with the centralised model. So I cannot help but think Rugby Australia is doing the right thing by modelling what they've done in New Zealand and what they've done in Ireland. So that, that hotbed of talent and just that openness and sharing, 
I can't think of an example in Australian sportwears that comes any anywhere near that. The only one I can think of, Kieran Perkins did tell me a number of years ago what they did with Australian swimming when Don Talbot came in. He said, I don't give a shit about different squads, Queensland versus New South Wales. We're going to share best practice, share protocol, talk about training programs and Australian swimming went to the next level. So yeah, that, that hot bit of talent, that was fascinating for me. But maybe I'm nerding out because this is the field I work in. Yeah, that was one of my takeaways too when he was talking about, you know, all the best mental skills coaches in New Zealand all meeting up at a pub somewhere. I wonder if one day they're going to have a big plaque up on the wall. This is where it all started. Maybe they'll feature it in the documentary that they inevitably make. My other takeaway, Andrew, was I noticed you a few times during the podcast were trying to pump him up a bit, and every time you did, he'd deflect away. You know, oh, it's not me, it's the team. It's it's not me, it's someone else. And you just I, kept... I did eject and go, Quinny, come on, mate, seven titles. You've just won the, the, the title in Japan. He's got world-class athletes, track and field athletes. He's working with the Black Cap, some of the best cricketers in the world now. And he's like, oh, it's part of the team. That's a really good observation, Bruce, that we do see. It's a commonality amongst a number of our high performers, isn't yeah. it? It's we over me. Yeah, it's definitely something I've noticed. They, they're very, very reluctant to take any of the credit themselves if they ever take any at all. It's always the team around them and they always push towards that. They, they're never trying to take all the glory for themselves. I've mentioned that a few times on this podcast, Wiz, the difference between the German word Mitfreud, pleasure in other people's success, and Schadenfreude, which is pleasure in other people's misery. So with Quinny, you could definitely see there was pleasure in him developing, growing, nurturing others. Hey, the other thing I've realised is the time, and I've got to go and get a microphone on and present, get out of podcast mode and get into presentation mode. So I'll leave you in the studio, Wiz. I'll see you, I'll see you soon. No worries, see ya.